Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, Spine Number 3, Hard Target from 1993, directed by John Woo and starring Jean-Claude motherfucking Van Damme with double-fisted gunfights, the best mullet in the history of cinema, I think, and also a Cajun Wilfer Brimley. Cody. What you got? In the city of New Orleans, in a darker side of Dixie, away from the music and the lights, there's a new game in town. You'll be provided with a guide, trackers, and the weapons of your choice. I need to file a missing person report. The competitors are deadly. We pride ourselves in hunting only combat veterans, men who have the necessary skills to make our hunts more interesting. And they always win. You want to find your father? Get somebody who knows the city to show you around. Now, the opposition is about to get one last chance. What kind of a name is Chance? My mama took one. Friend Mr. Boudreau, Silver Star, Marine Forest Recon. He's obviously not someone we should underestimate. He is an annoying little insect. Now I'm stepped on hard. We need to get out of here now. Ladies first. What? These men will chase after you. You mad at you for business or pleasure? Both. Look at it this way. You're gonna get to meet Elvis. Give it a rest, pal. Jean-Claude Van Damme is the hard target. You miss me? From internationally acclaimed action director John Woo. How's it feel to be hunted? You tell me! Hard target. Welcome back to another episode of Secret Handshake. I'm Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Cody Bouchard. Kicking ass. And the Mattress King of Austin, Martin Carlson. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Excited to talk about one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, this is your pick this week, uh, but I do need to know, did you make any money this week just plowing Desperate Housewives? I did, indeed. Nice. Um, it's, it's going well. It's uh, um, I'm... I think I finally hate, stopped hating myself this week. That that was a big move. That's a yeah. breakthrough. A couple calls to my therapist, but besides that, I think I'm on, I'm on a good path. You worked through your own Paul Schrader movie this week. I, I definitely did. Um, like I just had hardcore playing on repeat in the background. Jesus. So, yeah, yeah. All right. How has the, the coronavirus affected your business? Not at all. Not at all? <laughs> no. Well, okay. Do they wait, make you wear a mask? Not like the mask from Scream or anything. I just mean like... You know, an actual like what? What are they? The, face the covering. Dust mask. Yeah, face covering. Yeah, mine's more like um, 
<laughs> and the mask from screen thinks to think of uh, Eastbound and Down. <laughs> um, yeah, that's but, right. I okay, totally okay, okay I was making sure. I was like, I just my brain went there for a little bit, but uh, yeah, some sometimes masks. Some people, it's kind of part of the kink. So yeah, yeah. You have to buy those full body condom suits like they have in the Naked Gun. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Well, speaking <laughs> of kinks, uh, you picked uh, Hard Target this week. Fill us in on why. So um, when we were kind of pitching this idea to each other about the Secret Handshake film, um, the person who I have, I think, the most like Secret Handshake relationships with, like films that it's like our thing. And this is a popular film that other people have seen. My brother and I just have this like very like clear connection over Hard Target. Weird, but continue. Yeah, so much that. So we... We're, we're seven years apart and growing up, we fought like any brothers. Wait, is he older? Or he's older. So he's, okay. yeah, That's he's a pretty seven. good difference. Like he's out of high yeah. school when you're still in middle Wait, school. Wait, were you an oops baby? I was not. You were um, not? No. Um, what number you planned, are you? Your giant Viking parents planned to have. I was actually part of a secret uh, Swedish government installation uh, science project. Oh, wow. Uh, to create uh, like new warriors, but it, it failed. Uh, this, a, I'm like, it's like twins. Like, there's a really good like badass <laughs> out there, and I'm just tall. Wait, are you saying that you're Arnold Schwarzenegger? No, I'm Danny DeVito. DeVito. Oh, you're just, Danny DeVito. He's just tall yeah. instead of short. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pass. So, but uh, no, but anyway, we were you know a few years apart, and especially like, during when I was in elementary school, he was finishing high school, and we fought like a lot of times. But you realize that seven's on a few. That's almost a decade. Yes, yes that's, exactly. That's substantial. I think three is. Like, that's condom bust, like, level. <laughs> yes. And, uh, but one thing we had in contact was him showing me action movies. And, uh, sure. so it would be, hey, I got my, my parents didn't really want to let us watching a lot of this stuff. So it would be like, oh, my friend has HBO. They take this movie, Hard Target, off of TV. And he would bring, he would bring this stuff home. It's how I saw, like, On Deadly Ground. Um, and it's how I saw, um, Another film, I don't want to say it, but I'm mentioning for my double feature, a couple other films, but this was one of them that I, at the time, I thought was good, like actually a good movie. Like when you're, when you're a kid and you're like, it's I like. I know exactly what you mean. It's like 1994, and I'm like, oh, this is how life really is. Like when you're an adult, this is it. And I thought, like, this is actually a cool guy. The dialogue's good. It's deep. Like, this is how cinema's supposed to be. This is basically a documentary about New Orleans. Exactly. For real, though, right? And this is how, Could like, you understand what he was saying when you were... How old were you when you saw this? I was nine. Could you understand Jean-Claude when you were nine? Mm-hmm. His, his Creole accent? Yeah, and I... But I was already a Jean-Claude fan at the time of the ones I'd seen, and... Wait, what was your first Jean-Claude Van Damme movie? My first one was probably Death Warrant, actually. Oh, wow. It was the first one I saw. That's kind of a hardcore one. It was a hardcore one. And I think my dad's like, he had agreed to rent it for me, which he shouldn't have, and was like, then he kind of took a step back, like, that was too far. Yeah. And then I wasn't allowed to see Hard Target. Because that's the one in prison where he's yeah, fighting. Yeah, the Sandman. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's actually a really good one. Um, my brother and I, like, he showed it to me, and we both, like, we loved it. And then it was one of those films that over the years we just kept referencing back to like just like when he went to college we became better friends like i was in middle school and like getting interested in girls and we were both like on the same path in life we would talk about hard target a lot so much so that on the night before he was married um i brought the dvd because like we were chilling together the night before because all the like the bridesmaids and stuff were together with uh mandy his now wife and he and i was hanging out drinking so we watched hard target like for his last hurrah <laughs> before he became a married man. Okay. Um, but it's another film. It's it's so cheesy and it's so absolutely batshit insane that. But I love it for 
different reasons, but it's like I've grown with the film. Like my tastes have changed, but I love it even more, I think, than I did I when of, I first saw it. I kind of take uh, issue with you calling it cheesy. I don't think it's cheesy. You I don't think, think it, this is camp to the extreme? No, not mm. in the least. I think it's insane, but I don't think it's cheesy at all. Okay. So. Maybe, maybe that wasn't the word, but it it's very arch. It's very over the top, you yes. know, and, and even for Wu. Like, I mean, uh, I think there's some moments where it's like, wow, this is pretty... It's not shoot 'em up bonkers, which I know wasn't woo, but it's like it's pretty crazy at the okay. same time. Um, but that was my that was my introduction to the film. It's why I love it. Um, and how about you two? What is uh, you've Cody had you had seen this before you realized? Well, I think right? what was interesting is that like Cody <laughs> Cody was having this moment where like he was trying to figure out while watching it if he had seen it before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, what did you figure been, out? Uh, I mean, parts of it definitely. I remembered, so I think that I had just seen pieces of it maybe on TV or something, but I've, yeah. I've definitely never seen it start to finish all the way through. Right. Okay. I've seen this movie, this was probably, this was the first time I had watched it in a while, probably somewhere around like six or seven years, mm -hmm. but I had watched this movie so many times on VHS that like... You started it, and it was like almost Proustian in the way it all yeah. came back. Is that like you know I was sitting back in my parents' musty living room, um, like with the VHS playing again, and I knew every beat of this movie. It's 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 a film that like really, I don't. It has moments, you know what I mean. Like some films kind of just like wash by you, right? It's like yeah. oh, I I think I like even Jean Claude. Was like, I think I like that movie, like. I like Bloodsport fine, but it didn't stick with me the way this film did, right? Where this film was just like, boom, like Wilford Brimley moment, Arnold Vosloo moment, Lance Henriksen moment, crazy, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme action scene moment. Weird. It's like there's so much, there's like literally moment, 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 moment of this memorable stuff, right? Right. That it really sticks with you. Now, um, where were you with Wu in terms of seeing this? Is this your first John Woo movie when you saw this for it, the first time? Yes, it's funny because I felt so John Woo, like I had a whole thing in middle school. I still adore John Woo, but like that's when I really got obsessed with him. I feel like that's who he makes movies for, is like thirteen year old boys. Um well Action no. Action Heavy. Uh, he would completely disagree though. Like yeah. he, he has he wants to be like he wants to be Jean Pierre Melville. Like he really sees himself as like doing these like crime epics. Well, and also, I would never show a 13-year-old bullet in the head. Like, they just wouldn't... That's his deer hunter. Yeah. You know, like, that movie's, like, so intense and so emotionally, like, uh, in your face with what it's tackling that um, I, I... It's My dad had a thing back when Heat first came out is that I remember him and my Uncle Denny saying to each other, um, I wouldn't want to talk to any anyone about this movie who wasn't under like 35. Like I feel like like Bullet in the Head is one of those movies to where like I don't want to talk to a 20-year-old about Bullet in the Head. I want to talk to like a 35, 40-year-old or even a nom veteran about Bullet in the Head <laughs> because that movie is like in your face and upsetting. Well and and what you're saying could I think even though I don't think he's making him for 13-year-olds that that but that style I think lines up though with a thirteen year old boy right? right so whether it was intentional or not I was that age where I was like this I, and again I thought these were were and I still think they are great films but 
I thought they were like super, super deep, like realistic. Like, and my dad would come and watch it and watch me watch them and laugh. He's like, right. all the times the dubs going, he would laugh. And he, he still makes fun of me for loving this stuff, which I, you know, we kind of go back and forth about, but. I think I feel the same way about The Crow. Like, well, I, I thought that movie see, was like super dramatically deep. for 13 year old boys. Yeah. That, that was so neat at 13. And the sequel's yeah. coming out, so I was all about, like, yeah. But, any, but, but with John Woo, though, I, I had a very... I, I watched it because it was a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Yeah. Like, that's why I wanted to see it, right? And I'm like, this oh, is really, same. So yeah. this is really cool. Oh, and obviously, same. it was his first... It was the first, Wu's first film in America. And I... Then it was, in middle school, Replacement Killers came out. And I liked Chow Young Fat. And I right. said, that idea... It was funny, because, like, that's not a jean Wu film, but they took... His tequila character, basically, or his the killer character, and the double-fisted, like, two Berettas gunfights, yep. and brought that to America. And yeah, that's what Antoine Fuqua's first feature? I believe it was, or it yeah. won, one of his first. Well, because it's like, he did Replacement Killers, and then Bait with Jamie Foxx, yep. and then Training Day. Yeah, it was quite, yeah. quite a 90s into 2000s, and I thought, I liked I liked uh, Chime Fat a lot, and so I was at Best Buy with my dad, and they had a... Chiang Fat double VHS box set. It was two like really cheap VHS kind of box set, and yeah, it's yeah. killer and hard boiled. Like the Whoa. like hardboard with just the two sleeves. In yeah, and it's all yeah. exactly. And so that's a brain rewiring box set. I got that. Well, I, and I got it. and I brought it home, and it was a Saturday, and I watched the killer. I'm like 14, 13. I watched the killer <laughs> and hard boiled back to back. And you're like, right. it was literally just like my brain. You came out of your room with a trench coat, smoking a cigarette with a five o'clock shadow. Anyway, I was like, I was a man now, you know. And I thought, but it was funny because I. I, I went from a Chiang Fat fan to a John Woo fan. It was like this moment where I realized the director was in charge. Sure. You know what I mean? It was like I knew who directors were and I knew they were important, but at that age I still wasn't I still wasn't that star mode a lot of us I think were, right? Oh, it's the new Schwarzenegger movie, it's the new Jean Claude movie. And I was like, oh John Woo, he's the guy. And then when Face Off came out, that's why I was so pumped. It was right in that time period. And yeah. I and I'd seen Broken Air with my dad in the theater, but I even didn't know that was John Woo. I still was seeing that as a John Travolta movie. Right. And then ninety seven hit, it was that perfect time where I was a John Woo fan now, his new movie, and I wanted to see Face Off more than any movie I'd ever seen to my put in my life. I How literally many times was like, did you see it in the theater. I only saw it once because so I, I wasn't old enough to go by myself. My parents were like almost Face off. They almost weren't gonna let me go. Yeah, because they were like, oh, because they were like, you know, you've been watching way too much violent action, and I was begging them. And you're like, fuck you, mom. Because Face Off's what ninety seven, ninety seven, somewhere ninety seven. Like, yeah. If I remember right, Face Off came out, and it's one or the other. I can never remember the sequence, but one weekend you had Face Off, and then you had Con Air. It and was I remember very my, close. Yeah, yeah, that was a destructive summer for my it's brain. Like the Nicolas Cage Renaissance. God, it was. But that was it. Was that, I mean, it's so. I just. Another reason I love this film is that it just kind of like again another, I like it now differently because I became a John Woo fan after I first loved it. You know, it's that sure. weird thing where it's like, and I think we talked about this when we were watching. There's so many ways into this movie as a Jean Claude film, as a John Woo film, as a '90s action film, as a Hong Kong inspiration American action film as well. You can Almost look like at a it gateway drug movie. Seriously, you can like literally fall into a lot of different categories here in terms of fandom. Yeah, um, but. Well, it was a gateway drug movie for me because similar to what you just said is that like I remember watching Hard Target kind of almost the same exact way you did is that my dad would bring home action tapes. He would always bring home on the weekend like a stack of movies from West Coast Video and it would be like 
One for my mom. Uh, one that was technically like a PG-13 thing or a PG thing. Like usually like a John Candy type movie that we could all watch together. Um, and then usually a couple action movies. And like there was always some Seagal and there was always some Van Damme. And like it was cool if we all watched them like together. Um, but like that's how I saw Hard Target for the first time is that it was a VHS. Yeah. And I remember watching it and it was weird. Like even as a kid... I was sitting there going, this one feels different from the other ones. Like, there's something about it. I can't quite wrap my, you know, my brain around why. And it would be like a couple years later when you started reading stuff like Entertainment Weekly uh, uh, and other, like, kind of movie magazines, um, like, especially, like, the Leonard Moulton movie guides and stuff. And then, like, you would find little capsules for The Killer and Hard Boiled, and you would read about John Woo, and you would be like... And especially with like when when Entertainment Weekly was kind of writing about <clears throat> what a uh, troubled production Hard Target was, mm -hmm. and how like afterwards like Hollywood was kind of courting John Woo uh, to make like a couple other movies, because um, I had read somewhere that like the original version of Hard Target wasn't even supposed to be Woo. Like, wasn't it supposed to be a Kurt Russell movie at one point? So it was Woo and Kurt Russell. Oh, was it so, Woo so and it, Kurt Russell? It was, Man, imagine that. Kurt Russell, was his, Kurt Russell was his first choice. Right. Um, so there's a great um, Hollywood Reporter article that I, I read yet, again yesterday. It was, it's, the whole, it's the whole history. It's an interview with John Woo on the something anniversary. I think it was like... 2018, it's the 25th anniversary. Like 2018. What does yeah. that movie look like though? Wouldn't you have to do some rewrites? Because uh, you know Kurt Russell is definitely not the martial artist. Well, this is early in the script. Like yeah. this was like the idea of like a man being hunted. Like like New Orleans uh, actually was added in because of Jean Claude. I read that. Yeah, that. because that was, they wanted to play with his French accent. They wanted to make it, and it ended up being a great location. Um, and it was. Kurt Russell's originally what they were going to do, and then... Because he, he'd been called, I believe, by Universal. Universal really called, cold called him and was like, hey, let's talk. And like, right. we want you. And he was, and he said he had never even considered going to America. He thought it was like not in the cards. Like, it just wasn't going to happen. Because he... This is an th interesting thing. This is the first Hollywood film made by an Asian film... Asian... From Asia filmmaker. Right. Ever. Wow. Like who who had been flown over? It is, and I, I I was like I looked it up. I was like, there's no way. Like there's got to be like hyperbole. The first. It's kind of hilarious that this movie is is in fact a piece of history. Yeah. Well, and then he was interviewed about Crazy Rich Asians, like in the same interview, talking about how now it's like there's a, obviously a different environment in Hollywood. Yeah. But he was the first. Well, I thought it was just like kind of actually kind of cool too. That this is this movie. Sure. You know, you said it's a piece of history. It was a, it was a, an open gates for other filmmakers as well. Well, and back to kind of my thing is that I was, I remember reading about these movies and reading about John Woo and then seeking out um, his filmography, like at the video store and mm -hmm. watching, I watched A Better Tomorrow first and then I watched The Killer and then I watched Hard Boiled because Hard Boiled's his last movie before America. It's literally the year before, right? That's 92? 92, because the killer, the killer he played at Cannes, and it blew up. Yeah. And that's where everyone started talking about him. Because, like, Better Tomorrow was big in Asia, but hadn't really crossed over. Well, and the and, other big connection, I mean, that can't be kind of understated is Tarantino. Like, Tarantino borrowing... Like from John Woo, all the skinny ties, the black, right. the black suits, and everything, and that was the other gateway too. Is that like ninety? You know, you have ninety three Hard Target, 
Um, 94 comes around and has Pulp Fiction and like you've, you're seeing Reservoir Dogs or at least I'm seeing Reservoir Dogs in between and it's like here's this cool guy like this cool kid making these awesome weird crime movies where all of these dudes are talking like tough guys and everything they're all dressing in the, you know these skinny black ties and like shooting at each other and then Tarantino's talking about you know in his coked out vibe going John Woo and, and referencing all these Hong Kong movies and stuff and that's one of the things that made you like go seek these movies out is and then because I think that was one of the other things that helped push those movies get better VHS releases in the United States to where you could actually see them. Because I remember seeing, uh, I started working at Blockbuster at a certain point, and we actually had uh, A Better Tomorrow, uh, The Killer, Hard Boiled, and then A Better Tomorrow 2. Um, so I watched all of those, and it was like, whoa. <laughs> And then you had uh, the other movie that we're kind of not forgetting, but that that's in between that and Face Off is Broken Arrow. Yeah. And then Broken yeah. Arrow comes out, and I mean, I feel like that's one of the ones that gets. The Rock wasn't Woo, was it? No, it was, no, it was that's Bay. Bay. Oh yeah, yeah, that makes Ooh. a lot of sense. And um, that was also a form. I mean, for me, like Michael Bay's action movies, so much Bay um, was like that. That those were formative films too. Like particularly Bad Boys. Um, I don't really like the original Bad Boys that much. Oh wow! I like. I love The Rock. I saw The Rock like three times. I made my dad take me to The Rock. Like three times in the movie theater. My dad took me. But then I saw Armageddon was another big one too. Uh, But then, because that's summer 97 as well. 98. Was that 98? It was before my freshman year of high school. Okay. Um, So then, but then Face Off was big. I remember seeing Face Off uh, at a multiplex in Dewey Beach, Delaware. Um, I saw it five times that summer in the theaters. I bought a ticket for Contact every time and snuck into Face Off. And it was just like your eyeballs falling out of your head because you couldn't believe what you were seeing. Like, and then John Woo just became, I think for like a period of time, John Woo was just my favorite director. It was just like, oh my God, what is happening? He was my number one, like from about 96, again, after I'd seen Broken Arrow and I didn't know that was him, but from about yeah. 96 on, once I realized who he was until honestly, I'm talking past Mission Impossible 2. I love Mission Impossible 2, and it came out. I saw it five times in the theater. Yeah, I saw that a lot, too. I, I took like all my friends. I'm like, they're like, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, let's go see Mission Impossible 2. Have you ever seen that three times? I'm like, yes, I have. And we literally just went, like, it was like five times in one week. It was stupid. Wow. And um, then when I got on DVD, it was the same thing that next fall. Um, but you mentioned, real quick, Bad Boys. And, and to bring it back to, like, my brother, like, that was a film where we became friends as well because he was graduating high school and said, hey... I'm 18. I can take you to action movies now. He's graduating high school. You're in the fifth grade. I'm fifth grade. Graduating, I'm in fifth grade. He goes, it, he picked me up from school and is like, hey, guess what? I got a ticket to see Bad Boys. And I literally like just lost my you know, 11-year-old mind. Also, here's mind. a six-pack and a pack of cigarettes. No, Smoke but, but, but like, Cody has you smoking a lot of cigarettes no, as a little kid. I was a complete dweeb. But, like, I, I idolized my brother, like any, any younger brother. Yeah, I idolized yeah. him. And I wanted nothing more than to be his best friend. And all of a sudden, he was like leaving for college. And he was like, puts his hand out. And it was th- honestly through American action films. Like, seriously. Yeah. I don't want to get kind of poetic here. But it was like, 
that and then also that summer Die Hard with a Vengeance was 95 it was like we're going to see these movies together. Sure. And it was like those kind of moments. And a Hard Target's another one of those, but that was VHS. That same yeah. kind of thing where it's like, hey, when we're sitting here, we're not fighting. Yeah. We're on the same level. <laughs> we're friends and we're enjoying. <laughs> we're brothers, dude. We're it. brothers enjoying a really like badass action movie. Yeah. You outside know? of the shower. Like, yeah. When you guys weren't showering together. <laughs> I mean, it was, small, it was a small house, you know, so. <laughs> He's going to hear this Sunday. He's going to love these, that story specifically. But, but I, It is I, sweet. I do have a question, and I don't want to step too far over, because uh, I know we're going to go into depth when we actually get to the questions portion of the podcast, but like, where is this in terms of Jean-Claude Van Damme for you? Like, Because we had this debate while we were watching yeah. it, and like for you guys, like... We, I kind of referenced the rewatchables and was like, well, is this is Apex his Mountain. Apex Mountain? And Cody thinks Bloodsport is, right? Yep, absolutely. Why? It's the one that I just most know him for. I think it's the one that anyone will, like just any non-cinephile, just kind of common person that has any shallow knowledge about Jean-Claude films. Uh, I think that well, that's the biggest one. hit, that's right? A, I think at that's the, the one that introduced me to him also. And I saw that when I was younger. And well, yeah, that, that's I, the I thought first that movie, I saw. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, like similar to you, how you were speaking earlier, Martin. Like, I thought that movie was, like, genuinely a, a deep story with, <laughs> with real-life drama in it. And, like, this is the way the world worked. What a friendship between him and, uh, what's his name, Animal from Revenge of the Nerds. Yes, I love him so much in that. <laughs> It's interesting because I think you're right. I think that that film because I didn't see Bloodsport so much later. Yeah, oh, like wow. I, I just kind of because so I, I was like 14. I, I was I just kind of like went back through and Lionheart was an early one for me too, and I really do love Lionheart a lot. Um, Lionheart's the pit fighting movie. Yes, right? yeah, yeah, for money. Yeah, I like that one a lot. Yeah, and it's and it's he was like it's great. He's in the French Legion and yeah. he leaves because his brothers died. And it's like oh, it's so like it's awesome. Um, Is that the one with? Um, uh, the guy who played the killer in Cobra, Brian Thompson, in it too. He's like one of the thugs. Yeah, so he's he's the like main henchman of the woman who runs yeah, the whole that, the, that's, the rich that's pit what fighting. I'm up. I mix that and Lionheart up in my head like a little bit, or Lionheart and Death Warrant up a little. Yeah, bit. and those are two of my favorites. Um, so you're saying you're saying Bloodsport, Bloodsport, Apex. Yeah. Um, I'll let you go, and then and then I'll. I think this is like I yeah. think Hard Target is like the one. Where it's just um, because it's a thing where outside of Schwarzenegger, these guys weren't really working with like auteurs. Like, because, and I think that that's a big deal. Um, And I think what was interesting about Jean Claude Van Damme. Um, even beyond this is that A, he worked with John Woo, which was awesome because he was kind of integral in bringing John Woo in on the project too or like changing the movie around him. He flew over to and Hong like Kong actually, with, yeah. with the producers and was like, we want you. Yeah. Jean-Claude and did? Like, so Jean-Claude did. And okay. then he was hard to work with on set. He was really hard on Wu. Yeah, that's what Wu said too. But before, he like he championed him. He really wanted him there to direct the film. Yeah, but I mean like uh, like Take that, Kurt of, Russell. You're not putting that work in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, you had, like, out of the 80s action stars, like, the the oiled dudes who were these, like, like Stallone worked with mostly workmen. Like, the George P. Cosmatuses of the world. and uh, well, Who let him direct as well. Who, who you know, kind the, of let him co-direct yeah. sort, or ghost direct, we should say. Yeah. But then, like, you had Schwarzenegger who worked with, Cameron, yeah, like that was his big one. Um, 
But then Jean-Claude was actually working with like some weird ones outside of Wu, like Roland Emmerich uh, making Universal Soldier. Yeah. And then he would go on to make... Who directed uh, Time Cop? Uh, that was Peter, Peter Hyams. Okay. Yeah. But then he went on and worked with um, uh, Wu's uh, mentor, oh, not mentor, but like comrade, let's say, with uh, Sue Hark with Knockoff and Double Team, the Dennis Rodman movie. Yep. So I, I mean, completely like, forgot about that. Yeah, one. I like that movie a lot. Like I love. I remember it being fun. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. But like, it's weird. Like Jean Claude Van Damme either had someone around him or himself had really good taste in guys that, in collaborators that he wanted to work with. Because who was the guy who uh, somebody else uh, directed? Nowhere to Run. Um, oh, the guy who directed The Hitcher, Robert Harmon. Yeah, I was just reminded that because we're going to get to that later on our podcast. And the writer, Joe Usterhausey, was one of the screenwriters yeah. for Nowhere to Run. And that's a really good one. And because it's, it's funny, I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. If, but well, about, no, it's, yeah. Nowhere to Run's the one right before this, right? It's right, right before. Right after, I Right after. Yeah. Okay. I knew they were right around the same time. But this is the point to where, like, it's interesting because I watched Kickboxer mm. right after this one to try and figure out in my head, okay, where where does Jean where does this rank for Jean Claude? And then you have like the evolution of Jean Claude is that you have like Bloodsport, you have Kickboxer, you have Death Warrant, you have Lionheart. They all have like a formula. Very like much. It's, yeah. a, it's either a guy going to compete in like some kind of, of underground competition or like martial arts competition mm-hmm. or who's going to like fight for money or fight his way out of like an institution in a way. Um, and then you had movies like Universal Soldier, uh, Hard Target, and Nowhere to Run where he's actually attempting to act somewhat and like really kind of form characters yeah, you're right because he's kind of he could he's very much just like the stoic like lead action star in those in those previous films. And I think that it's interesting. That I would put Universal Soldier together with um, with Time Cop, and that he was going yeah, for yep. he was going for kind of sci-fi action for sure a little bit. They're like his Predator. It was like what, what Schwarzenegger was doing with like McTiernan very much. Well, he got, and he had McTiernan too a couple times, twice. You know um, who did Jean Claude? Uh, no. Um, Schwarzenegger. I'm saying, I'm saying, because uh, he also, you know, um, Last Action Hero as yeah. well. The idea that you yeah, know, that, that Jean Claude uh, appears as himself in. Yes, he does. Um, and but the, I and think Stallone appears as a cardboard cutout in Terminator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but for me, I think Apex, the Walking Standy. Yep. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Apex, though. Somebody's got that in their house somewhere, and I want it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah, and it's probably worth a lot. Um, I would say this is probably. Personally, my this is probably Apex for me, but at the time, like like ninety six, we need to come up with our own term. Like, we can't yep. steal Apex. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry, but you said yeah, but I <laughs> but I, I know that I said it, but it was like. But yeah. I would say um, honestly, Time Cop at that time was really for for just Jean Claude was big for me, right? Um, and I I had that on VHS. I just watched it. A shit I just ton. love Hyams. He, he's great, and like it's actually like really well directed. Like it yeah. look, it looks good. Like you're you're saying to it, him trying to actually build characters, not just be the fighter. Like there is some kind of interesting stuff about like him playing two different characters, like past him and future him, and also like going back and like being jealous of his previous self. And he's he's emotional with the death of his wife. Yeah, but it's actually kind of they actually take the time to let it. 
And he has that kind of destructive, isn't he still like, alcoholic. Doesn't he have the awesome mullet still in that, too? A different one, but pretty close. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's always the, there's like the, we almost would have to figure out like where, like Hard Target is like the number one mullet, right? Like, like that's, if we're talking about Van Damme, uh, like that's, that's the number one. Cause even Cody was trying to figure out like how it was styled. Like, did he shave the front? Was yeah, it yeah. all grease? I was, I was taking a particular time to, to really notice where, where the, where the hairs were going. That mullet is styled. Oh yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's almost, it's almost like a jerry curl in the back or something the way. <laughs> and it never, he never, it's it like never, letting his soul glow back it never there. loses its shape. <laughs> Like yeah, no, shit. I mean, like he's like he's in some precarious spin, situations. Spin kicks movie. and explosions. That mullet is staying golden. Well, that's that is the one thing is that you were even talking about while we were watching it, and I was doing some reading afterwards. Is there were some very peculiar contractual uh, stipulations that Jean Claude had to where like he always had to have a third camera on his biceps. Yeah, so it's, I read it. I reread it yesterday to double check, and that's true. Okay. But so are we sure it's true or is it legend that's just been printed? Over, well, but it was. No, but, but sorry, John Wu said that's what happened. He was interviewed and he said that's true. Okay, and he said there was he had a multi camera and there was part of it. They had to always have cameras on his biceps, but he said he never used any of the shots. So there are bicep shots in the movie, like when he does yeah. the part with the with the uh, grenade, yeah, the awesome shot. But that was actually like woo, like actually framed that up for that yeah for that scene the awesome thing about this movie is that if you're going to be an action hero and you choose john woo you like you're going to get a like a plethora of hero shots like yes. he's gonna make you look good i mean like there's there's shots in hard-boiled where it's like you know chai and fat is just he's just perfect he's a walking god he's a walking and for me like the shot where he like swings a down where, uh, where he swings down from the um the top of the fe- the uh, warehouse oh, yes. uh-huh. in hard boiled. Yeah, in the uh, in the uh, the float graveyard. Uh, well, this is, sorry, talk about hard, hard boiled now. Oh, okay. But uh, it's very sexually a very similar moment though. Yeah. And he he swings down with a shotgun. Oh, sorry, machine gun. And it's just this like perfect slow mo John Woo shot. And he just I don't think you could look cooler. Yeah. You know. And he you said he gives those moments to Jean Claude as well in this film. So like, I guess. Should we tell people what this movie's about? Are we assuming that people have just seen Hard Target? Because, like, it's a most dangerous game riff. I'd be really entertained to hear your breakdown. You're like in. What you would tell someone. Okay, here. I'm yeah. going to tell you Let's what this movie's about. Is that you're in New Orleans. It's a sort of destitute New Orleans yeah. because you have the Cops are on strike. Yep. Cops are on strike, which is a nice little way to kind of write out... Uh, any police not why being around. Why aren't they there? Yeah. Um, Which explains why a, a white woman in New Orleans is almost raped in the middle of the street in, in on broad her daylight car. Yeah. outside of fucking bar. noon. In like the French Quarter. Yeah. But they're... So we're in New Orleans. Uh, no cops around because there's a police strike. Um, and there's a cadre of uh, rich folks uh, led by Lance Henriksen who are essentially... Uh, bringing in people who pay them to hunt uh, homeless former or homeless veterans. Yeah, they're mostly veterans, yeah. Um, well, because they specifically pick veterans yeah. because they're, they're more better en- More entertaining, yeah. Totally. Um, and so they end up killing one who's played by Chuck Farrar. Who, yeah, the first one, the, the screenwriter. Yeah, who is the screenwriter. Who They kill him in the opening scene, and then his uh, daughter comes to find him, and she's... Played by Yancey... Yancey Butler. Yancey Butler. 
And his daughter, who has been exchanging letters with him for years, but has somehow not been able to find the time to come pick up her homeless veteran father off well, the streets he of New had, Orleans. Well, he had he oh well, he only he only been there a short time. He said, yeah. and then he he was literally he lost just as lost his job, but she didn't know about it. Okay. Yeah. And then he was he basically the halfway house he was living in. He left and it's well, along the street. It wasn't a halfway house. That was just an open courtyard, and he had a basket of no, stuff. No, no, the first place. The oh, woman. Okay. He's living gotcha. with a woman in like in a, a, a house. But yeah, and then they they go look for him in like the underpass, kind of little homeless shelter uh, or like homeless community yeah. that he's become a part of. But like uh, then she recruits uh, Jean Claude Van Damme, Chance Boudreaux, who is a uh, merchant marine, correct? Yeah, um, Green Beret. Ex Green Beret, but he's now a sailor. Like he yeah. works on on like cargo ships and stuff. He's about to ship out, but he can't. Uh, uh, he is he also hasn't... homeless, but like kind of a, a high level homeless. Yeah, he's but, a functioning homeless. Yeah, and yeah. he and he has been previously hard up homeless, which he addresses at one yeah. point. Yeah, which I think is also interesting because I. You know, we, we were probably going to get into this more into questions and stuff, but there are multiple <laughs> cuts of this movie, and, like, there is some interesting kind of thematic stuff that underlies or is, like, running through this with, like, class and, uh, and like, kind of uh, how these uh, rich folks are coming in. Like, they specifically even say at one point when they're recruiting a new client – or I think even in the, the conversation they have when Van Damme like confronts them at one point, that they say they go into territories that are war-torn or have been ravaged by like poverty or, or like a a, uh, a like kind of act or, or something that almost like a, disabled a, them. A destitute state. And they yeah, exactly. And they come in and that's their hunting ground. Like they know that they can prey upon people, which I found kind of interesting and always wondered if that was a bigger point in the script like he was kind of getting into the class stuff uh, but anyway she rec- she recruits Chance Boudreaux um, to show her around and help to find show her, her around father. and hunt down her father because he's a former as Cody points out homeless guy and then shit hits the fan violence ensues Arnold Vosloo the, says a whole the, bunch the of, guy from the mummy yeah it says a whole bunch of cool shit and kills people and like for my money the last 40 minutes of this movie rank with the best of Wu stuff. Like, it just gets wall-to-wall. It just like, goes bananas. Yeah, well, kind of like how we were talking about with Six-String Samurai uh, with the last episode. It's like Six-String Sa- Samurai was kind of a movie that we all agreed upon was, like, probably better when you were younger yeah. but didn't age as well, like, on this viewing. This movie, like, when we hit that last 40 minutes, I went... Well, this is just as fucking good, if not better, than I remember. <laughs> we were all strapped in. Like I, it probably been only two years since I last saw it, but like, I was. It's a pleasure. Like, this yeah. movie is a pleasure to watch. Like it is. There's a real dopamine rush that it delivers. It's and it like, it's it's so. There are just this this got this great like comedic element to it. Like it's very. It doesn't take itself. Like it's the same thing. Well, we saying, haven't even talked about Wilford, Wilford Brimley. Brimley. Well, and I, we're gonna get into that more in questions. So that's okay. Okay, cool. Um, but I think that there's out of all of Wu's stuff, this is one of the funnier ones. Oh, he, it's hilarious! I, I think it's actually like really funny. And part of it is not purposely because like Jean Claude is. Just my mama took one, like a lot of his accent. And, you know, and he's doing an accent. You, you, he's not just using his French accent. He is doing a Cajun thing. It's it's like I mean, it's like you. What's your name? 
Nat, your mama named you after a bug. <laughs> Short for Natasha. What's your why'd your mom what's your name? Why'd you go chance? My mama took one. Like it's just gold. Like you can't Well, it's sort of like I I'm not again to keep making these comparisons, but it reminded me a lot of Schwarzenegger. Where yes, like Schwarzenegger yeah. had he developed a self-awareness about his accent and about how people perceived. That the never way gets that addressed he, in Jingle All the Way. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, he had a, he 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 figured out that like people perceive him a certain way and the way that he delivered and he would lean into it. Yep. This feels somewhat closer to that, although I I still think that Jean Claude has a bit too much of an ego. To ever let himself fully lean into the, like the buffoonery of it, like Schwarzenegger does. That's one of the things that I think you'd never makes, get John Claude in Twins. Yeah, or well, or now like get, even Last Action Hero. Yeah, you would get him now. Now he's very then. now he's like very self aware, like JCVD, and then also John Claude Van Johnson. He the show on a, Amazon. Well, I, you know, I think he doesn't that have came a thirty year old later ego. with age with him and with his career. You're right. Or like right. Schwarzenegger figured it out quick, and that's what made him such a great movie star. So I heard a story about Schwarzenegger real quick that he based off that that he part of his contract was that he would have final say about about screenplay but by dialogue he would go through and if he had long uh, speeches he'd cut it because he knew after a certain amount of syllables and lines he sounded dumb yeah so he knew it's like I'm a one-liner guy I can do comedy like but it's like I can be I can make myself look stupid and that's fine but he knew, like, he, like you said, he knew how far he could push it before it was ridiculous. Well, Schwarzenegger you know? also, he was a, he's always been a better actor than people gave him credit for. Yeah. And Van Damme, as you kind of pointed out, grew into that much later, especially as he developed and honestly lived a very hard life, yeah. let's say. But Van Damme almost developed a, a sad clown mm. Uh, 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 kind of visage, and and then utilized that in his later career um, to his advantage, to where like you could see all of those bad decisions on his face. Yeah, and he would pick. Well, he roles. kind of showcases that in JCVD, right? Exactly. He almost looks like the martial arts Buster Keaton at times. Yeah, you're right, and I think yeah, he's. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that at that time we're saying like at when he was at his peak, you're, yeah, he was not aware in that way. He was the epitome of almost like a diva. 100%. Very much. And well, and so the real quick story, too, like there's that classic moment on the uh, red carpet for Universal Soldier where he and Dolph Lundgren are getting to shit with each other. They oh, always, yeah. They almost beat each other's asses on the red carpet. Now, the rumor is that there was like a, a publicity stunt that they both had worked it out ahead of time because now they're cool, supposedly, but like there was also talk that on set... It was not good, right? Because like, because like, uh, were they both in the same Expendables movie? The no, but, part, but yeah, in part two, yeah. Were they in part two? Yeah. Well, because I mean, like, they're both in uh, the best Universal Soldier movie, Day of Reckoning. Day of Reckoning, and I, I think they're like, from what I understand, they're cool now. But like at the time, like Van Damme was much more established in ni- in the early nineties, and. It was probably Dol- just Dolph- too much ego for one. Oh, room. his head was so far up his own ass. I guarantee. I mean, yeah. you can just tell. And that's one of Dolph's better roles, actually, I think. In your, he's actually great in that young, one. Like Young Dolph? Yeah, Young All Dolph. Right. Um, but yeah, anyway. Uh, but we should get into questions, right? Let's hop into questions.
good whiskey, Mac Jack Rabbit slapped a bear. We're back with questions about 1993's Hard Target. Martin, this is your show, so take us to the mattress. All right, take us to the mattresses. Uh, so the first question I have, this is loosely based on Richard Connell's 1924 short story, The Most Dangerous Game, a lot of us probably read in high school. Right. Um, is, this, is this the best Man Hunts Man film ever made? I'll ask uh, that to Cody first. No. Uh, I think the one we watched with the iced tea was better. Oh, Surviving the Game? Yep. Why, why do you elaborate, Cody? What do you, like, why do you think it's better? Just iced tea. Yeah. <laughs> that movie does rule. I mean, Rucker Howell's, Howard's yeah. great. Yeah, Rucker Howell's great. Um, Busey, one of his best, that monologue that Busey gives. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, the dog it, monologue. We were watching Busey. it, and Cody's like, that was fucking great, because it just, like, it just like, pull, pushes in on him slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, real slow, yeah. You know who else is great in that movie? John C. McGinley. He... That and because he's the guy from Scrubs. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, when he Con, turns yeah. and he's like, because they had that moment in the cave, which yeah. is so surprising, where he says like, because he because he gets mad at him, because he thinks that because um, as he his, makes the his, joke his, that he had killed his own family, and it finds out, and McGinley had just lost his kid, right, to cancer, right, and McGinley said he th- he hates him more. He's like, oh, he's just some murderer from the streets. It's like, no, I was like the manager of a building and it caught on fire, which I should have been like paying attention to, and my wife and my kid died. Yeah, yeah. And then they connect, mm-hmm. and McGinley walks out. He's like, I'm done. I'm yep. going yeah. home. It's and like, then blam, bullet yeah, through the dome. It's I mean, it's amazing. That movie's great. I like Hard Target more because I feel like Hard Target. Uh, reaches levels of ridiculousness, but I also think that's a difficult question because um, Most Dangerous Game has become one of those uh, movie archetypes or like storytelling archetypes we should talk about that yeah. like has been utilized in many different forms and many different cultures, like everything from like you know uh, Osploitations, uh, Turkey Shoot. Yep. Uh, the that's Brian Trenchard Smith, I believe. Oh yeah, and um, a movie that we're gonna discuss here in the next few episodes. Are you like gonna Battle say the Royale. pest? Oh man, like they're all. <laughs> I want to give honorable mention to John Leguizamo's The Pest. What? <laughs> Where he gets taken to a rich man's island and hunted. Oh yeah, well that's true. See, uh, I. It's just... I, I know it's a broad... It's a very broad genre. I'm thinking just specifically the man, you know. And I mean, surrounding the game is the same story. Pretty I mean, much. It's like the idea of like rich people hunting homeless people, but it's more specified to one, one guy like yeah. going out and not being in a city. But besides that, it's the same idea. Yeah. You know. Like and a cabin more. gets blown up. Yes. Um, I would agree. I think this is better. Um, I think this is... This is my favorite... This is the first one I think of when someone says, like, a man hunts man narrative. Hard Target's the first one that pops to my head. It's one of the first, It's yeah. one of the first. And actually, the 1932 film, The Most Dangerous Game, is really fucking great with Joel McRae. Yeah. Um, it's a really, really, like... I saw it years later in college after I'd already, lo- already loved Hard Target. I'm like, well, this is actually a really great, like, 65-minute, you know, right before they did King Kong, the same team that did King Kong. So, um, yeah. Well, and you were talking about one... Uh, not too long ago, an Albert Pune movie with Dangerously Close, which is yes. sort of a riff on it. That's like the high school paintballing riff on Most Dangerous Game to a certain degree. Like, there's other elements thrown in there, but that becomes almost like 
instead of killing people, it becomes like a popularity contest. Because they're, they're at a magnet school and they want the kids gone. It's, it's, yeah. it's A, scaring them off, but B, it's a game for these, the, the cool kids, the cool yeah. rich kids. And, um, but it, it is, it's interesting that it's become, it's just so used. I mean, in TV shows, there's always an episode sometimes where the hero is, is captured. Um, there's actually a really good film um, that was done by Dan Curtis, a TV movie with... Um, Something of the Wolf. Not Hour Brotherhood of the Wolf? <laughs> no, I love that movie. Well, because um, Hour of the Wolf is what? That's the Michael Haneke movie. So it's time, time, time of the Wolf is Haneke, the and then wolf, Hour of the Wolf is, is Bergman. Okay. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll look it up while we're talking about other questions, but it's a similar thing where a guy is hunting. They think it's a werewolf. They think it's a wolf like killing people. It's actually a trained dog by a rich guy who likes to hunt people with it. Well, um, and speaking of the werewolf... Um, you have the one that was that old Amicus movie. Uh, the Beast Must Die. Yeah, The Beast Must Die, which yeah. is another that even has the werewolf hour or the were- werewolf countdown as its gimmick yes. at one point. But, I mean, that's not quite a most dangerous game thing, but it's close. Um, or, or we just had one uh, with Ready or Not, um, which is, again, another riff on it. So, I mean... There's so many. Because it's, so it, it's such a general idea. You can do anything it's with real it. It's, yeah. real, it's real adaptable. It's real adaptable. But nice. do any of the other ones contain the devil, like ready or not? <laughs> no. Not that I can think of on the top of my head, but it, I, I liked ready or not. I didn't love it, but I thought it was a good way to kind of. It's fine. Yeah. It was yeah. one of those festival things that everyone Same. lost their mind for, and I was like, it's okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen your next. This was like the Archer Farms version of your next. <laughs> <laughs> Um, next question? Yeah. Cool. Uh, so this, we were talking earlier about how we all are going to have our different types of questions, right? And my right. question for this will be, is this a Hong Kong movie? Like, so this is... No, uh, it's made in America. <laughs> next question. I know. Okay, moving on. No, but so it's interesting, I, I think, this film, because it is kind of lightning in a bottle. Sure. That th- this was... Historical. Bring, yeah, historical. Bring John, bringing a filmmaker the first time over from Asia, um, from any Asian country, to direct a Hollywood, uh, Hollywood major blockbuster film. And they were so afraid of, of him not being able to handle it, they had Sam Raimi there to follow him around. Right. Um, and that's the story goes that they, um, they hired him on, and he was executive producer, I believe. Um, yeah, him and Bob Taper. And Bob right? Taper, who, and, and Wu tells the story that. Very, very quickly, the other producers and the studio were taking power away from Wu, especially on the edit. And that, that, yeah. that, that, um, but there was a story where, um, Raimi and Taper, I believe, both got a screaming match with like the rest of like the production team saying, Whoa. or and the producer saying, this is Wu's movie, get off his ass. Like they, and I still, I think there was still, obviously, took things away from Wu, but. Well, because Raimi was basically hired as a babysitter, but like he was a huge John Woo fan, so to him it was just it was almost like a way to 
almost like smuggle this guy's vision in or at least attempt to yep. without the studio fucking with him. Exactly. He kind of backdoors it a bit. Because he very much, like, they, like Wu says, yeah, basically he didn't tell me to do anything and we would just have dinner a couple times a week and have drinks and talk about movies we liked. Yeah. And he's like, I love Sam and I love Rob Taper. They, they, they were in my corner the whole time. Well, um, like, even... Okay, like, I understand your question uh, despite my knee-jerk reaction because, I mean... It, as the the legend goes, is like even when they tried to test this movie, yes, like test audiences didn't understand the the editing rhythms, especially the dissolves and everything, because mm-hmm. they all uh, associated dissolves. With there were like a couple fl- of straight like Star Wars wipes in this that I yeah, and there's some Star Wars wipes, but, but they thought it was a flashback. They associated dissolves with flashbacks, so like they didn't un- quote unquote understand it or get it. So. There is something interesting happening here because, you know, the movie is notoriously butchered. You know, it went from like, there's like a hundred, you can find four different versions of this floating around the internet if you want to. Like, there's like a 120 plus minute work print. This is Wu's Blade Uh, Runner. Um no (laughs) well actually that's not a terrible comparison like because like he made like this there's 128 minute work print that doesn't have any soundtrack it's just you get to watch all the footage before it's temp and then there's a loose director's cut quote unquote that is like his I believe that's his preferred uh, cut of the movie and that's all tempt to James Cameron's Alien score, the the, the yep. James Horner score from that, um, and that has pretty much all the gore, and then also a lot of the subplots that are kind of t- taken out, and also it's worth noting uh, to kind of address like uh, Van Damme's diva status is that the earlier cuts of the movie focus way more on Lance Henriksen's bad guy, like he's he's almost the main character. Um, which is also kind of interesting because as we were talking uh, during uh, while we were watching the movie is that you see a lot of Wu's trademark thematic obsessions kind of come through, but they all come through with Henriksen because Henriksen has this code. There's an even though they're hunting human beings and he is um, uh, a, a rich person who obviously is a man of privilege far above those who he's hunting like he doesn't see them as necessarily quote unquote lesser like he wants the prey to be a challenge and like there are moments where like guys try to almost take like cheap shots at the guys that they have cho- chosen to hunt well, we just he, get a helicopter we'll shoot him from there yeah and he like stands in between them because to him it's all about um it's a hunter. It's, it's, it's got to be fair. Hunt. It's all. It's all about the code of ethics that kind of yeah. goes into this game. And doesn't he use a thir- a one shot thirty aught too? Yeah. Yes, he does. Yeah. It's like, a. It's a Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. That's the that is also the gun from Hard Boiled, correct? Yeah. So it's it's um what Mad Dog has. Yeah. It's exactly. the gun that Mad Dog has, and what but. And when I'm asking about the Hong Kong thing, I mean, I, I well, know you're. Well, to go. go sorry. To, sorry. To keep yeah. cutting down is that then you have. Uh, because the studio basically kept tampering with the edit, and then Jean Claude was tampering with the edit because yeah. the movie uh, was focusing on Henriksen. Like Van Damme's argument for it was 
they didn't pay to, they're not paying to see a Lance Henriksen movie. They're paying to see a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. So he actually brought in his own editor yep. to like focus more on him. Jesus. And then you got um, the yeah. hundred, it's like right around a hundred minute version that restores all the gore because this movie also had a very, very rough time with the MPAA because it got an NC-17 at first. Uh, because of the blood squibs and some of the arrow hits and stuff um, that you can also find. That's the international cut, which is, for those who are interested, if you get the Blu-rays that are out there, the American Blu-rays, they all have an R rating on them, but they actually have the international version with all the gore in. Netflix actually had the international oh, version really? for the longest time. That was the easiest one to find. Like The theatrical is the one that we rented off of Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime and that runs 96 96 or 7 because yeah. it's like the 96 theatrical and then there's the 100 minute international and the 100 minute restores all the gore but um, four minutes of gore that was too hot for American cinemas. Exactly. It's it's four minutes of violence. But what's interesting about it to kind of go back to the idea of you asking if it's a Hong Kong movie is the movie's edited by Bob Murawski who is on top of being Sam uh, Raimi's regular editor. Like, he edited the Spider-Man movies. Um, he won an Academy Award for The Hurt Locker. Uh, he also is the founder of, or co-founder, of Grindhouse Releasing uh, with Sage Stallone, who sadly passed away a few years ago. Um, but he is an exploitation historian, and along with Raimi was a huge John Woo fan and a John Woo scholar. So... To answer your question, no, this isn't a Hong Kong movie, but it's certainly edited by a guy who understands Wu's Hong Kong style. And like you watch it, and it's one hundred and ten percent like a John, like a John Wu movie, because he he finds those rhythms. As Cody pointed out, there's all the wipes, the dissolves. Like this movie, he does the the fast, like he finds like the Pixie song editing rhythms that that John was known for with the fat, uh, the slow to fast to slow. Like it's, it looks like his movies from Hong Kong, or it feels like it. What do you think, Cody? <clears throat> uh, I don't think I'm versed enough, really. Uh, yeah. It, uh, it, it felt like a lot of the action movies that I saw when I was younger, so I, I can't say that it really feels different to me that to be an international Hong Kong film really? feels like an American movie. You yeah. don't think that this movie feels different than Bloodsport? I'm sure that it does. Uh, I'd have to rewatch you know, Bloodsport you, you're again. You're like, I don't care enough. Yeah. To even find out. Well, I, I think that like the reason I asked the question too is like I think maybe the better question is is this a John is this a Hong Kong John Woo movie because I think it is this interesting film where we take a lot of things for granted now in American action films like after the Matrix I think especially that, oh, yeah. that loves sure. that loves Woo that made things and of course after the Matrix and everyone was like we want to do bullet time and it's like all of a sudden you have it in like Romeo must die for no reason mm-hmm. and these weird moments they try, or swordfish people do it, it a, changed a, people do it a jump kick. 13 feet in the air. Right. And just, it changed the language of, right. of action scenes. 
But it's funny you mentioned like the the, the these previews where it was the the dissolves, but also the slow mo. People were like laughing out loud at because people were, they were not used to that. And there's a history that he also talks about like Peckinpah being a huge inspiration for him. He said Melville and Peckinpah are like his two. That well, he, there were you times know, where they even said like on set he refused to use English. Yeah, but the way he would describe shots. To the cinematographer, Russell Carpenter, I believe his name is, is that he would say, this is the peck and paw shot. Yeah. And that's how he would convey what he wanted the movie to look like. Yeah. And it, it's just, I, and I guess the reason I asked the question too is just, it's, it is this like little time capsule of the first Hong Kong filmmaker coming over making an American film. Sure. Before it was kind of dissolved into American cinematic filmmaking. You yeah, because that's like, why I, it feels American to me is because I'm just so used to everything after that. So, it, exactly. so maybe it's because it changed the landscape that to me it doesn't feel different. It's like people talk about like when they – and they'll say, oh, I don't get why Citizen Kane's a big deal because we're looking at it from now, right? It was like you're not looking at what it changed at that time. Yeah. And I'm not to call our target Citizen Kane, but I think it did make these big changes to film style, especially for American action films, that aren't appreciated – now, because it's, now it's just so part of like the normal vernacular. It's almost like, like a uh, hard target walked so the Matrix could run type deal. Absolutely, and it just and it. It's a really, nice sentiment. I like that, and I'll, I'll take that. Um, All but, right. Yeah. Next question. Um, sure. Hard target walked so the Matrix could bullet time. <laughs> to wire fill. Yep. <laughs> um. So okay, greatest Wilfer Brimley moment oh, in this man. film. I so we we. We saved Brimley for the questions here. He is Uncle Duvet. Uncle Duvet <laughs> and Wu. Wu and his. He can come up with a different name. Uncle Blanket Cover. <laughs> it sounds French. Fuck Uncle, it. Uncle Pillow Sham. No, he's um, <laughs> so. But Wilfred Brimley, I think, is one of the most delightful parts of this movie. And Wu, being interviewed, says he goes, "I liked working with Wilford. He was great, and also like." He adds his whole other energy to the scenes he's in. And, like, he shows up really late in the film. You mm. know, we're pretty late in the film. And all of a sudden, you're like, every time he's on he, screen, he puts he a smile is, on your face. He is the third act. He yeah, is. Yeah, no, Cody does have a good point is that, like, the third act basically revolves completely around this character who before... He's the deus ex machina of this film. Kind of in a weird way. Like, he, he just shows up and you're like, who the fuck is this backwoods, <laughs> swamp-dwelling, whiskey-brewing yokel who shoots arrows at people? Man, I wanted to try that whiskey. But man, oh, good whiskey, man. <laughs> Jack Rabbit, jump up and slap the bear! <laughs> He's... I think, and to go back to my brother, like he's who we quote the most. Like I think, in terms of quotability in the of movie, course. it's it's all it's a couple. Again, there's a couple of my mom took one, and like you know lines like from uh, you named your your mother named you after a bug. Like there's these Jean Claude lines, but most of them are Brimley. Like sure. he is the thing I think that stands out. Here's an interesting thing about the Wilford Brimley performance that I really really like. I don't know if I can. Bo- I mean, I'm gonna. Since we watched it last Sunday, I've watched Hard Target three times this week. Cool. Because I forgot how much I loved it. The thing that I've quoted over and over again has been the good whiskey make Jack Rabbit jump up and slap the bear. <laughs> because So that probably is my favorite moment. It's just such... It comes out of nowhere. It's just... It's literally his character introduction around this like moonshine still where he takes a sip of his own whiskey and goes... 
like, <laughs> he's just he's so totally into the life that he's living i think but, that line is like the thesis of his character yeah exactly like it's so good but like um there's also something interesting about it it's the it's the way Brimley, you said this while we were watching it, is that Brimley totally understands <laughs> what movie he's in. He gets the what, movie that's yeah, being made. Yeah, exactly. And I think beyond even the goofiness of Uncle Duvet, there's this like real melancholy where there's the moment where he gives Jean-Claude the shotgun and like I got a chill that ran up my spine like rewatching it the first time with you guys where Jean-Claude blows the dust off the shotgun the sunshine comes in through the window of Uncle Duvet's like little shack but there's this cut and it's to Wilford Brimley's face and it's Brimley watching it and because the whole idea of the relationship is that like Jean-Claude earlier in the film says, oh, I was basically raised in the bayou by my uncle. And you never really think anything about it until yeah. Uncle Duvet comes back. But it's so totally Jean Woo to have this cutaway shot. And probably Murawski also like understanding the way that Jean Woo operates because he operates on an almost... Um, like there's a there's a an almost Brechtian level of emotion like that he's bringing to it or that he he loves melodrama like Cody called it camp earlier and it's the it's the the thing that I take issue with is that I feel like he loves big arch emotions and he wants you to to hit, get hit like right in the art, the heart with it a lot in the same way that like Douglas Sirk when he was making melodramas in the 50s with Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman like he saw action movies these movies that were like uh, uh like Wu saw action movies as maybe this the, the these movies that were viewed as like a quote unquote lesser form yep. by like the mainstream or like film critics at large and saw a way to like get these these emotions and the these ideas about codes and honor and brotherhood and family and this is the mo- the moment in hard target that really mostly like represents that is that there's this cutaway to Wilford Brimley's face where he sees him blow this the the uh the, the dust off of the shotgun that was that was chances as a child and it's just you see this rush of like memories of be of like raising this boy just rush back to Wilford Brimley it's such a wonderful little moment um, but it's the same way that like Douglas Sirk saw women's weepies during the 50s as these the these kind of forms that like uh, or like modes of, of storytelling that like critics just dismissed as they yeah. were like women's weepies like that was a uh, a derogatory term that were given to the types of melodramas that he was making but to him it was this way to make these big broad bombastic love stories that were also a little tongue in cheek and goofy and commenting on the way of American life but like nobody else was operating in that mode and so they, they were the the cinematic soap operas of their day? Sort of, yeah. They yeah. were they were aimed at women. They were aimed at housewives. Um, and, like, they were the things that, like, men were basically like, well, go, you go off and watch this. I'm never going to watch this with you. And Cirque saw it as, like, we're going to make movies that, like, hit you square in the heart. And I think Wu operates in the same fashion in, in the way that he conveys emotion is that it's just, like, 
here's a shotgun, here's a man blowing dust off of it, and here's the man who raised him, and here's all the memories that that brings back, and it's, like, Brimley nails it with one little facial tick. That is a beautiful scene, and it adds a lot of depth to the character that I didn't consider before, so I actually want to thank you for breaking all that down right now, because just from that, you also have to remember or, or assume that John Claude, something happened to his parents when he was young, so his uncle raised him in the bayou, then he uh, left to become uh, what, Green Beret, and then you know something goes wrong between then and getting back to regular life, and he's homeless for a time, but he doesn't go back to his uncle. Maybe he's feels like he hasn't lived up to whatever expectation, so he lets himself become homeless while working as a merchant marine, but in this time of need, he'll go back to him. Yeah, and then, like, Uncle Duvet is there, like, no matter what happens, like, Uncle Duvet is ready to throw down. He's like, <laughs> he's, oh, okay. He's ready to let his entire house get blown to shit. Well, and it's like he asks him that, that, like, Uncle Duvet asks him at one point, he goes, these men, they're after you for business or pleasure, and Chance is like, both, and he goes, all right. <laughs> he's the, and I, thank you also, I think you really put well that, that moment, and it also is such a woo moment where it really shines through, because for me... The stuff that really hit me was not just the action when I first saw Wu films back in like the 90s, but like, especially with The Killer and Hard Boiled, was like these really heavy, like, ideas of brotherhood and love between men. Right. Like, and it was, and it, there's a, and it's interesting, you know, because with The Killer, you have, again, the cop and the killer, you have the cop and the killer also in Hard Boiled, but it's Switch, who, who, uh, and Fat is playing, but these beautiful moments of saying, he's a good friend, he's a brother, and, like, what people will do for each other. And, like, we have to also, can't forget, like you were saying about Douglas Cirque, is Cirque was working in a, a genre and a subgenre, but in no way is he, was you want to look at him as, that's what a normal women's weepy was. No, that's not right? what it looked like. And the same with Wu, though, is Wu is really different from the 80s, other 80s Hong Kong films that were being made. Right. He was so out in his own, he was so idiosyncratic, even in Hong Kong. Right. That he's the one who stuck out, and then they brought him over to America, well, right? And, like, I, I watched um, an earlier movie of his uh, before The Killer and Hard Boiled uh, in even a better tomorrow, a movie called uh, Hero Shed No Tears, which was basically a, a movie that he needed to make to get out of his contract with Golden Harvest mm-hmm. at the time. I believe it's right around 1986, and it's a war movie. Um, it's a, essentially one long chase film um, that almost plays like closer to like a, a Italian cannibal picture at times. But there are moments in it of like machine gun violence and explosions and stuff where you watch it and you're just like beyond even the emotion. Wu understands the intrinsic cinematic appeal of violence. Nobody films violence like John Wu like. Like, when you watch it, like, he just sees the beauty in it. And, like, when you look back at, like, all the things that he talks about loving, like, uh, the old Audrey Hepburn musicals and stuff (laughs) like that, is that he loves motion. He loves the way that that violence is poetic and destructive at the same time and can convey all of these different emotions while also just being fucking awesome to watch. Like, a bullet hitting a man's chest never looked the same after John Woo, the same way that it never looked the same way after Sam Peckinpah, another director he's drawn from, as we kind of previously said. He just doesn't, like, I... He's a filmmaker that I... 
at the time, like we we're like you're saying, Cody again, repeating the idea that like I thought this was like how real life is. I thought this was actually like cool, and it's still like I still love Woo, but like for different reasons now. It's like it's like yeah, right. with, with and the same with Hard Target, the film we're talking were about. You, is, uh, were you terrified the first time anyone like uh, put the idea of going on a road trip to New Orleans? You know, it's funny <laughs> when I went to New Orleans for the first time. Hard Target was all I was thinking about. Like that was that was, that and um, uh, Angel Heart at that point. But I was like in in college, and I went with like my then girlfriend. We were on spring break in like Florabama, and we went over to New Orleans. But all I was looking for was Hard Target locations. Was like just trying to keep my eye out for that. Where um, is that float graveyard warehouse? Oh, it's yeah. Um, that and live and what live and let die locations too. Oh, my. My favorite Bond film. Um, <laughs> well, I, my next question kind of goes off what we're talking about right now, if that's cool, and we'll kind of transition to that. It's like, you mentioned this a couple times about, and we kind of saved it from the first part, and we've, we've touched on it a couple times here, but the idea that... Wait, this, we haven't hit on who, what everybody's favorite Wilford Brimley moment. Oh, we didn't get to that. I am so sorry. <laughs> we, I'm sorry. That's partially my fault. I went on such a hardcore, like, tangent. No, um, I thought it was really nice, Cody, though. best Wilford Brimley moment. Uh, when he... <laughs> Gets knocked down in the warehouse, and he and she comes and helps him up, and he pops back up, and he still like fires an arrow, and it goes flying past a uh, bishop's head in the slow mo shot. I like that a lot. That's that's a good. That's one. and that's in the trailer. I think it's such a good fucking cool shot. Like, yeah. Um, Jacob, I already said mine. Oh, you said yours. Um, for <laughs> me, it is just a pupotin, and he shoots the arrow. It knocks over his moonshine still and blows up his shack. And, and like, and Cody said, like this guy's ready to little. Like you said, not just throw it down, but <laughs> I haven't seen my nephew probably in years. I'm going to destroy my entire livelihood because yeah. a couple. I mean, these bad dudes are coming. But it's like, cool. I'm ready. Let's, let's do it. So are we? You just brought up livelihood. Like, are we just assuming that that's he sells moonshine? Like, he's a bootlegger. He's a bootlegger, but I think he, be. there's, there's a, the only way that he ha- could. There's a buy he lives off the land like an animal. I think he. That? I'm not saying it's. Wrong. I think he shoots gators and he eats gator and like Whoa, he's, he's just selling the moonshine to keep the lights on. He's <laughs> but but um my that he's making homemade dynamite. Yeah. But it's, where it's, does the electricity come from when you live in the bayou? I don't think. Does he have any out there? Yeah. Do we even see any? I don't. I guess th- you're right. I yeah. don't think it's all jumps to mind. It was, it was daylight when they were inside the cabin. Yeah, so. you're right. So it's probably all natural lighting. Maybe he's got a bunch of oil lanterns and stuff. Mm. He's it, it, and like you were saying, both of you, the idea that like we see where Chance came from, mm-hmm. and it's the idea. It's like it's cool. It's like you get an origin story through Uncle Duvet. You like because you, you can fill in the blanks where it's like like you said, his parents are probably dead. It's that classic like hero's journey. No parents. You have your uncle raise you. Yep. The hero's journey. It's like you, I mean, I, idea of like a young Van Damme and like Wilford Brimley, like him teaching him to hunt. Like, I want to see that movie. Dude, like, right. I, we, we should write a prequel to this film. Like, and we'll get to that question. And I have some stuff talking there, but you know, we've talked about our moments here, but the next question was, we talked about how this film was somewhat not butchered, but re-edited. And, and it kind of lost maybe some of the teeth that Wu's original ideas had. Sure. And already shut it. But you, you kind of hit it a couple times. Are we getting this class narrative? Is it there? Are we getting this? Is there a depth in this film as it stands? Not with what he's going for, but are you guys getting a story of the has versus the have nots? Idea of uh, rich people literally preying on poor people. Sort of, but not really. Not in the forefront. Not for me. Yeah. Like there are some interesting little moments and flourishes where you get it, especially early on where they meet. Um, 
and I, I apologize for forgetting the actor or character's name, but the, the black homeless veteran who um, he even narrates like how hard it is sometimes to be on the streets. And then you get this slow dissolving yeah. narrative where we just see faces yeah. Yeah, of, of these people who do live on the streets. So like you get it a little bit. The police strike, I don't think you would pick up on unless because it's only really shown in like a flash yeah there's like there's 15, like a picketing. 20 seconds yeah exactly if that yeah so like you only the, really the only other that. awareness you get of it is when you go into the actual police station and the one lady detective is the only yeah other person in that whole place yeah so like not you don't really get it it's it's hinted at um and it's more i think Lance Henriksen, who we haven't really even talked about too much, um, he's the one who seems to get the class part of it most, and I think it comes out in his whole code of honor thing. Mm-hmm. See the money? But he, no, uh, the he's uh, the main bad guy. Okay, um, the one who's organizing Bishop. the whole thing. Oh, okay, Sorry. Bishop. Yeah, he. I think you get it a little bit from the way that he interacts, but outside of that. No, not really. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Cody? No, not, not in the forefront of it. It's, yeah. It's, it's uh, 100%. Um, you got to really dig. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It's uh, it's more of a, I don't even want to say like a vengeance film. Like she's looking for her dad and then they find out the dad's dead and they think it would that he died of in a fire. And then John Claude goes back and finds the dog tag with the the the, the, hole. the, the, the triple-sided arrow hole through it. So with, like, the, oh. with the dove, although here they're pigeons... There are doves later. There yes. aren't there aren't there doves in the uh, the, oh, float, the, Mardi the float graveyard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, like it, that actually becomes a, a narrative plot point for one of the first, maybe only times in a John Woo movie where they usually they're just in the background as texture. Yeah. But here it like the pigeon actually flies through the window and lands on the dog yep. tag and gives Chance the idea. The pigeon gets a one shot. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The pigeon gets a hero <laughs> shot. Everyone's a hero in this movie. <laughs> well, you're, you're, I, you're, I don't know. I can't think of another Wu film where, where the pigeon plays a plot point. Where there's a plot point. I, I think that, I mean, where like... the pigeon plays a plot point. Or plays... Yeah, shut the fuck up. There's a heavy... There's a heavy I just use, like your alliteration. A heavy use of them in The Killer, in the church specifically, where it's a shit ton of the doves. Like, yeah. like, I think the most doves, the most birds in any Wu film was probably in that scene. Um, uh, I remember being quite a few in The Replacement Killers. Well, he didn't direct that. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So, but I'll yeah. Just shut up. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah. But I, the idea. You don't need to apologize. I was the wrong one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think uh, it's interesting to have a plot point. Well, while we're on the subject, though, it's not really a question, but let's let's get into let's get into Hendrickson a little bit more here. His performance, because I think similar to Brimley. Well, I want to talk about that. In my my. Double feature. Okay, you want to save it for that? Yeah, I'm okay. saving mine. Okay, that's cool. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll get into that. So I, let's go on to the next question. Um, this is more of it's like a, I guess a little bit more of a jokey one. We kind of hinted on it earlier. What specifically do you think is in Van Damme's hair? <laughs> soul glow, baby. Just soul glow? Yep. Pig fat. I, I think it's like a mix because there is a level of control, like that heavy... The, the stuff on top isn't moving around at all. It's like that dapper damn pomade, like pomade that they have in uh, um, a brother, a brother. Like that, where it just holds your hair. 
Yeah. Being you, placed. You, you think Chance is a Dapper Dan man? I think he's a Dapper Dan man. It's two weeks from everywhere. Two weeks, it's a regular odyssey. So I just figured out real quick what the name of that movie was I was referencing. It's a uh, Dan Curtis film called Scream of the Wolf. It's got Robert Graves as the lead character, who's a big game hunter, who is brought in to basically hunt a killer wolf who he starts to think is a werewolf. Ooh. Um, I would watch this. It's, it's on Prime for free right now. Uh, on, on Prime, we could watch tonight. I really I like this movie. People call it boring. It's just that great Dan Curtis made-for-TV brilliance. And also has some elements of what we're talking about when you find out what it's all about with man hunting man. So some really cool stuff. Nice. But uh, I want to hop to the next question. That's cool with you guys. Do it. Um, so double feature idea for you to both. hop up like a jackrabbit and slap the bear. Slap the bear. So I'm going to start with uh, <laughs> Jacob on this one. Okay. You want me to just go? Yeah. What's your double feature idea? Stone Cold. Stone Cold. Uh, 1991, I believe it is. Um, Brian Bosworth. He is an undercover cop, and he, you know, is here's the thing about Stone Cold. <clears throat> it is a movie that is obviously like a post Cobra, post Canon, post Sylvester Stallone. Uh, is totally operating on the whole idea of like the cop who plays by no rules uh, and it's Brian Bosworth and he goes undercover with a white trash, probably white supremacist biker gang because I mean they wear like SS Nazi patches and, and there's Confederate flags everywhere. Hey, they could just be representing their culture, okay? Oh, wow. We're not going to go down that path. But, <laughs> Whoa. Uh, <laughs> And Cody just got us canceled. But anyway, before... I was being 100% sarcastic for anybody go, uh, To me, this movie is... Uh, it feels like it was written by par like a, a parody that's played completely straight. <laughs> because it literally opens in a grocery store, kind of like Cobra does, to where these three thugs come in... They're robbing the place, and John Stone is just eating cookies, and they sh <laughs> shove a shotgun in his face, and he, of course, just mauls these fucking robbers. And as soon as the cops show up and see John Stone, they're instantly like, oh, how many people did you kill, man? And I thought you were on suspension. <laughs> and you're watching, you're like, oh, but he just, and he literally walks out, and he goes, yeah, well, I got to tell you clean up on aisle three Jesus. and just leaves and it cuts right into the credits and that's how you know what movie you're watching you're like okay but it's him he gets basically blackmailed by the fbi because he is on suspension um so he's at home making protein shakes for his pet i think it's a gila monster um love it and they tell him that, you know, of course, if he comes and goes undercover with them, they'll lift his suspension. Although he's a Mississippi cop. So I don't know how the FBI has any kind of power or to do that. But anyway, there is no logic to this movie because he goes undercover uh, and infiltrates this gang that's led by Lance Henriksen. And they're, of course, you know, running meth, running girls. They're in, they're feuding with the mafia. Um, but their big thing is that they're uh, trying to kill a bunch of uh, Mississippi Supreme Court justices because <laughs> they're 
buddy who shot a priest for no reason. Like it literally, they showed this this murder in like the opening like five minutes in this montage where you're basically being introduced to the gang to where this priest is like baptizing this child and then looks up and it's just this big bald dude with a shotgun who literally blows him through a stained glass window for no apparent reason. And then he goes on trial. The attorney general's trying to put him on death row. All of the Supreme Court justices are like trying to take his side. So like uh, the, the biker gang is blowing up Supreme Court justices. And Brian Bosworth goes undercover to uh, stop them. Lance Henriksen plays uh, the leader of the biker gang. Uh, William Forsyth in one of the most insane performances you will ever see. The most probably... This out of, out of like, many from him. Out of many from him, but this might be the maximum Forsyth. Like, this is him at, <laughs> at the top of his insanity. Prime Forsyth. You literally meet him while he and one of his buddies at, like, one of their, like, biker rallies are shooting beer cans off of each other's heads. So one guy shoots a beer can off of his shoulder after missing three times, mind you. And so... Forsyth puts the beer can on his head and goes, shoots it off my dome. And he shoots it off. So the other guy takes his turn, puts it on his shoulder, and William Forsyth pulls out an automatic weapon and starts firing and knocks it off and then blows the car up behind him. This movie is... It's like if steroids became sentient and were allowed to direct (laughs) a motion picture. And it's just... It's nothing but... Motorcycle chases, explosions, strippers, hair metal, Brian Bosworth and his Gila monster, Lance Henriksen as a hippie who also murders National Guardsmen, explosions. I already said that. There's a, 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 a motorcycle jump at the end that is one of the greatest stunts I've ever seen in an American motion picture. Four stars. The, one of the best movie-going experiences you'll ever have in your fucking life. Find Stone Cold. There's a Blu-ray out there. It will blow your mind. There's things I know that I'm forgetting that you, you just have to experience. Because, like, summing up the plot of this movie, like, I literally just said he goes undercover four or five times in a row because there's nothing else to talk about with it except, the like, it's an experiential film you just watch it, let it wash over you, and it's like staring into the face of God and realizing that God has Brian Bosworth's mullet. That's my <laughs> double feature pick. I was well said. <laughs> and I'm going to throw it over to Cody. Oh, God. You won't, I got to follow that up. Uh, uh, my pick you actually said earlier, Angel Heart. Nice. Uh, you know, another detective story, uh, although you know he's not looking for... He doesn't have the ties to the uh, female lead in... For the same motivations, uh, she's just kind of found along the way, right? And it, Lisa Bonet. I know Lisa she, Bonet, uh, her first like quote unquote adult role. That's when she got fired off the she got Cosby fired show off the Cosby show because of because that because of because the sex scene in it because there well, she, she did nudity, right? Yeah, so, yeah, well, and isn't that was also a movie that had to be cut afterwards because the sex scene was so graphic it's her and mickey rourke yeah in like prime mickey rourke like, yeah before he became a boxer quote unquote well it's like back when mickey rourke was sort of like young brando yeah it was because yeah. he, he'd done rumble fish and then this and he was he was the hot new thing yeah you know well, and, coppola like loved him yep um and this is 
before or after Year of the Dragon? This is, um, oh man, I think this is after. This is 87. Yeah. Um, Year of the Dragon's 89, I want to say. I think Year of the Dragon's after. Chimina, right? Yeah. Um, I thought it was before. But, but yeah, it's, yeah, Prime Mickey Rourke. And, you know, Angel Heart is that's probably top 10 for me, honestly. Favorite film of all time. Alan Parker, RIP. RIP. He, that and Midnight Express for me are just two films. When I first saw them, I was like, this is a movie. Like, this is just yeah. like an experience. What year is it? Year of the Dragon is 85. 85. Oh, wow. I was way off on Year of the Dragon. Because Rumblefish was 83. And Angel Heart's yeah. 87. Yeah. Was he in Outsiders, too? He was not. No. Shot at the same time, though. Shot the, it was back-to-back. Yeah. Um, but good pick, Cody. I, I love Angel Heart. Well, yeah, also very much uses... Uh, De Niro peeling eggs as Satan. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, that's, uh, that actually made me think one, one element I think that they could have used in Hard Target is some uh, good old-fashioned Louisiana black magic. Yeah, some voodoo. I mean, you, that's completely missing from the film. Yeah. To be fair, though... The one neat thing about Hard Target is that uh, the set piece that concludes it is set in the Mardi Gras float graveyard. Yeah. And it's basically them doing the the, the hospital such, shootout from Hard Boiled, but in a Mardi Gras float. Uh, such graveyard. great eye candy. Oh, it's amazing. And he, you know, he also, like, woo has no trouble just taking from himself. He's like, this worked in Hardball, I'm going to do it again here. And so, yeah. like, the shootout between Vaslu, um, Pick is his name, right? And, and Jean-Paul is the same shootout between Mad Dog and uh, Tony Leung, right? Where they're shooting at each other through the glass yeah. in Hardball. Well, and he does it again with Cage and Travolta in Face Yep, off. same yeah. thing. Yeah, mirror. through the glass where they're on opposite side of a long mirrored hallway and they're just shooting through at each other. Like, yeah, he, he's fine cannibalizing himself totally but i also wonder how much of that is to go back to your original hong kong question of like he saw i i wonder if john Wu's sitting there going like i wonder how many of these white people have actually seen my movies you yeah know? yeah and it's like the, 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 i can take from it because it's like for me instance like when i'm writing a screenplay i'll steal scenes from other films i haven't had a produced screenplay so it's yeah. like no one's read it I was going to take it from myself, right? Yeah. And his idea is like, who's even seen Hard Boiled? Well, it's sort of like, I know that this is a weird comparison, but it's like Joe Bob Briggs, if you watch his newest show on Shudder, like he'll do, when he did the uh, marathon and he was talking about Blood Feast and stuff, he was mm. literally quoting verbatim from his um, profoundly disturbing book to where I, I literally pulled my copy off the shelf after one of his monologues and I was like that's the book like you're just doing the book not that that's bad but it's again it's a, it's almost like a revered uh, artist like pulling from themselves because they're going like how well, dare this, you say a thing you said before this generation hasn't experienced this yet right yeah I would um yeah, I, I love I love that whole set piece. Um, well, my pick is going to be actually um, Return of Swamp Thing. Um, oh, Jim Wynorski. So, um, have you seen Return of Swamp Thing, Cody? Yeah. Um, so that's my. I, I really liked those movies when I was a kid. I mean, you go back and watch them now, and they're speaking of Joe Bob bananas. Briggs, that was a that was a Monster Vision classic for yeah. me. I was the suit in the first one is so bad. And two, he actually looks really good. Two. Like one was actually the first one's like a it's like a it's like a green rubber dive suit. You're right, like, absolutely. Uh, you know, green veins on it. To... You leave Wes Craven alone. <laughs> I, I prefer to because I grew, I watched it more as a kid, and they also had the cartoon show Swamp Thing. Yeah, it's the better movie. 
it's it's funny and like there's it, the plot hole of the uh, main villain being brought back to human form and not dead right and it, but heather locklear being broad as is hell is that Louis jordan again yeah as as this as, as, arcane. Uh, as arcane and i'm also just a huge like swamp thing character fan like i love the old comics um i actually liked the dc universe show as well but I was trying to think of like I also as a kid was obsessed with the bayou like as as a location, and so I liked things that took place there. And I liked, partly because I like Swamp Thing, and so like watching this made me think of, and also Winorski like is a guy that you're talking about Stone Cold, where it's just like he kind of goes for broke, like yeah. like Chopping Mall, um, where it's just like he puts everything out there, everything well, in the kitchen sink. He knows what movie he's making. He knows exactly what movie he's making. So um, love, I love uh, Return of Swamp Thing. That's going to be my pick. Shopping mall is one of the classics where you have, for some reason, a, a, a co-ed dressing room at a, a store in the mall. Yep. he's. Uh, I interviewed him about that. I was, in, I was in grad school, and I got IMDb Pro for the first time, and I realized you could get these people's emails. Right. And so... <laughs> I was like, I wonder who I can just like find the personal email for. And I had just rewatched Chopping Mall, and I was like, Jim Winorski, blah blah, at like hotmail.com or something, right? Which is not, I'm not putting out his real email here. Um, and I wait, just, that's not his real email. <laughs> and I just emailed him, and I said, Hey, I'm writing a paper about Chopping Mall. I'm in grad school, and I'm thinking like, you know, he's never respond. Ninety seconds later, I get an email from Jim Winorski. Goes, What's your email? He goes, What? He goes, What's your phone number? I'll call you right now. He calls me immediately. He's the nicest guy and was just like, what do you want to know about Chopping Mall? Let's, and I had nothing, I literally had nothing prepared. He called me and I was like, oh shit. And I was just like, so what was it like working with Roger Corman so much? He goes, the best. What else you got? And it was just like, <laughs> oh, yeah. so, but, I'll, but he was very, very generous and I love a lot of Winorski's films. Um, well, but. you just gave me an idea. For a pick? <laughs> yeah, well, to get him on the show. Oh, I mean, he, we love to have you, uh, Jim Wynorski, If you're listening, wherever you are, thank you for talking to a lonely <laughs> grad student 12 years ago. We'd love to have you on the show now. Um, yeah. But uh, okay, next question: Should this film be remade? Uh, and I'll start with Cody. Uh, it's a no. It's perfect the way that it is. Uh, with all the edits and whatnot, I'm sure I haven't seen the international cut, but it sounds like that uh, four additional minutes of gore is worth it. Yeah, totally worth it. Plus, I can't think of an action star today that's like the action stars. To, are there action stars today? Like, there was definitely well, the age of action stars. You know what? There is Hard Target 2 with Scott Adkins, who to me is the Jean Claude Van Damme of this generation. Has he come up every episode? I think he has. The definitely yeah, was up uh, last week. Pretty sure that he has. We mentioned him last week. Yeah, like, but he. And Hard Target 2, which is pretty good. I liked and it. Is kind of just a remake. If you want of like uh, this movie with just rich people hunting a new set of of, of, of folks, but in Southeast Asia, right? Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, he's not he's not in the states though, right? No, it's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's one of those movies that was like shot for twelve dollars <laughs> in Bulgaria, yeah, you know, Bulgaria somewhere. <laughs> but I mean, like Adkins basically is the like that's the closest thing that we have to the eighties slash nineties, like. Uh, you know, oiled muscle men like martial arts stars. Like to me, outside of the guys from the raid, he's the best martial arts performer working right now. You know who film. else could do it? Uh, what's it? Jai White. What's his name? Michael, Michael Jai, Jai White. White. Yeah. Who they were in uh, the Undisputed, Undisputed Two. Right. Uh, together before. And was he in three together? Or two? No, the three is just all about Boyka. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
No, it's because it, I, I was actually reading about Adkins when I first got over here. I was just like on an on a article about best 25 action films to watch on streaming right now. And they had Avengement, which you had mentioned a couple times a couple weeks ago we were talking. And I agree. It's like that time is past, right? I don't think that – I'm not saying it's past forever, but like the idea of like having that action star – Adkins is like I think working as a '90s action star in 2020. Well, I think that this is uh, a topic that would turn this podcast into a four-hour listen. Is that to me? Yeah, you're right in terms of like that era has ended. Like because who's our action star right now? Keanu Reeves. Maybe. No, but I mean it's not even that. It's that that whole genre doesn't really exist beyond the DTV realm. Yep. Like. The, the things that this generation considers quote-unquote action movies are like Marvel movies. Like, that's the action cinema for a lot of folks. I would think like Ong Bak and The Raid. And well, for, for American... But I feel like, like that's a niche thing on like a bigger like blockbuster audience. Because, I mean, like Hard Target was a big hit. And like, um, that, that's a studio movie. Ong Bak isn't a studio movie. Like, John Wick... And we're talking American. We're talking American film here too. Bounce it back to your yeah. your yeah. Keanu like statement. You're like uh, that's the closest that we have to what like a mainstream a- like action franchise as we as '80s and '90s kids like remember them, right? The close. So for me, when I say like they're like, what are the action franchises that still have the element of the '90s? I always say Mission Impossible. Obviously, was a was a, a series then and it still is. Fast and the Furious. And, Fast, and I say Fast and Furious and John Wick are the three. Yeah. Well, and there's a guy, Lethal like Weapon. The, the Rock. Lethal Weapon. I know films now. Oh, okay. that are st- yeah. Films that are now being made, like gotcha. new, new series. Well, yeah. The Rock, I guess, is like... Yes. He's a guy who could have been our Schwarzenegger and he went in a different direction. Well, it's interesting that you said earlier that like Schwarzenegger worked, had an auteur. He had Cameron, right? And yeah. I was reading an article, an op-ed about The Rock and said, The Rock needs an auteur. To work yeah, with. Yeah, like he needs he, a guy he, to mold him. He needs a guy to work with him and say, like, you're my star, and I know how you work, and I know how to write and to direct for you. Yeah. And yeah. he needs a Cameron. And he could, if he had, because he hasn't had, like, that monster. Like, he's in Fast and the Furious, but he hasn't had that monster movie, monster-sized movie, I think, where it just, like, burned the, like, burned the theaters down in terms of sales. Yeah, like, outside of the Fast. Like, he doesn't he's open in a movie. Them. He's part of an, inso- an ensemble. Right. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about. It's like how we're in a, we're just in a different era now, and also like what we want for what we want from our action stars. Like I think after Born, there was definitely the sense of like being more vulnerable as well, and 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 um and being and of course the the, the new Bond with with Daniel Craig from then on was very much this like emotional thing, but also like with the idea of a darker past and being tortured and and physically more vulnerable. Well, that's the whole again longer podcast, different podcast, but that's the whole post Nolan Dark Knight era. Yes, and the way that those types of movies ushered in like audiences wanted a quote unquote realism. Uh, about their action heroes, and to me, that's incredibly boring. Yeah, that it's it's overly played out at this point too. It's really yeah. kind of hindered things. Yeah. Well, that, and and we'll get on the last question here, but I think what I like about so much with uh, Fast and the Furious is that it's kind of like it is like watching wrestling, where it's kind of broad, and it's like, and now Dom's a bad guy, and it's like the idea of like he's not he's not a face anymore, he's a heel. I don't even yeah. see it as wrestling. Well, I guess it plays in it's like it's it's a, it's a soap opera for guys yeah and it but it's like yeah. they, but they also know that yeah and so all this like the, the dorky stuff where it's like 
oh, it's about family. It's like, I sign up. I line up immediately. I don't sit shit opening night every single time. The, no, next, the next one's got to be in space. Well, they, 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 they said that they're not against it. Um, but So your answer is not to remake, though. Is that to be clear? To be it's, I, 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 I mean, I think it's an unfair question for this movie just because of what we talked about before yes. uh, with two things is both you're working on a kind of timeless storytelling archetype with the, the humans hunting humans for sport. I mean, we even had uh, this year with the hunt yeah, uh, the political take on that as well, um, and then B, you don't remake a John Woo movie. Like, what makes Hard Target Hard Target? As we've kind of broken down pretty thoroughly, is like this is a John Woo movie. You watch it for John Woo, and you watch it for Jean Claude Van Damme. I'm Bang. in agreement with both of you. I just think it's not. I think it's lighting in a bottle again. It's that film that was made at that time. Yeah, this first film for for. Woo in in America and I it's it's I mean we'll talk about Point Break in a few weeks but this idea like when they remade Point Break I was like no like you just there's just so many things in that that aren't here that I have zero interests yeah in whatever you could have to say about this this property one hundred percent yeah so last question is this a certified face melter I'm gonna go to start with Jacob yes undoubtedly I'm still recovering my face from this entire week of rewatching it. This is what, when I think of a face melter, like the experience that we had together watching this movie and cheering and just losing our minds, like that is what a face <laughs> melter is all about. Like this is, this hits all the buttons. This hits all, like it, 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 it achieves all the qualifications. It is 100% a face melter. I have no doubt. Cody? I think it's so much a face melter that we need to change the question for the future and ask, is this a hard target? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. No, I, I, I'm not against it. I, I think I agree with both of you. This is just... It's the pure definition of what a face melter yeah, is. Yeah, 100%. And I think that, like, you know, last week we were asking about Six Screen Samurai, and I kind of said it, well, it's in, in this. It's like, no, this is, like, unequivocally yeah. <laughs> a face melter. You're just sitting there... And with your two buddies, the whole idea, the whole point is podcast and just having a goddamn blast. But it's ridiculous at the same time. It's not like, oh, man, look at that really subtle character moment. It's like, no, it's like you're being blasted in the face. Yeah. <laughs> your, your face is being melted with action and comedy and ridiculous bravado and Wilford Brimley and Lance Henriksen just chewing the scenery. God. And just there's not a moment. There's literally not one moment in a film where I like am like. I've seen it probably. I've probably seen this film fifty times easily, and I'm not sitting here like ah, I've seen it. I want to just get to the end of this. Mm -hmm. Like I'm glad it's almost over, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. This movie made me want to rip the microwave out the wall and throw it into the street. Like I was just so <laughs> excited. <laughs> so this that wraps it you. up, yep. right, guys? Yep, it yep. does. Yeah, it does. Our target. First certified face melter of the podcast. We got one. We have passed on the last two, but this one. Totally achieved. Well, we didn't completely pass on the, on the last one, uh, right? Didn't no, we, we did. Okay. Yeah. Well, I thought I had said the six string was a face melter just in the, in, in the, in the sense that it changed the way I thought about things yeah. when I was 19. It's true. All right. And, well, I, okay. also, and I said also mm. there's elements of I'd seen it at that age as yeah. well. I agree yeah. with you on that. Okay. So first, uh, all, all agreeance certified yeah. face melter of the yeah. podcast. Yeah. 100 Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unanimous vote. With yeah. no stipulations. It's just, it's yeah, a no face melter. No anything. It's <laughs> right, just right, hard right. target, face melter. Thank you. Stamp it on the fucking box. Blam. And that wraps up 
Spine number three, 1993 is Hard Target. We will see you next week for, you know what, we're not going to tell you ever what we're going to watch next time. Martin already told, told you we're going to watch Point Break eventually in the future, but you don't know when that's going to happen. <laughs> but I'll tell you next week, really great mystery that uh, I think I'm the only one who's seen. So stay tuned, and we'll see you then. Thank you.